Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. They consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Oh, I forgot to write his whole name. Okay, well, it's fine if I don't. <laughs> Maybe it's like Prince, you know, just just one name. Hey there, and welcome back to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. This season's theme is Living Legends. We will be talking about ladies who are alive and over 80 years of age who have contributed to their professions and continue to inspire us to this day. Literally living legends. Today we're going to talk about Denise Scott Brown, arguably one of the most well-known female architects of the 20th century, and she's still alive at 92 and killing it. I'm Lizzie Rahr, going to get a Christmas tree tonight in San Francisco, and I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts Jessica and Nurjiti. I'm Nurjiri Rivas, excited to spend Christmas with my mom in Houston, Texas. Yes. And I'm Jessica Rogers, excited about all of the holiday food that we're about to consume, based out of Miami, Florida. Mm. Now, yeah, love me some food. Okay, so it's time for our disclaimer. The three of us are not experts on the subject. We are just sharing stories about the information that we find. If we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us, leave us a comment, and we will all continue learning. All right, ladies, we are heading to Africa to start our story. Denise Lakofsky was born on October 3rd, 1931, in Nakana, northern Rhodesia. Today, that's near Kitwe in Zambia. At the time, it was a mining town with lots of copper mines, but it was still quite rural and still considered lion country. Whoa. This background is wild. I mean, I know absolutely nothing about Denise's personal life and upbringing, so anything you said would be news to me. But I don't know. I just never imagined that Denise's maiden name would be Lakofsky. I thought it was Scott Brown. Like, that was just her name. And (laughs) I never imagined that she would be African. It's just, all of this is like, whoa, Also, what is lion country? (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Yeah. 
when we learned about her in school, they never give us like her life story. So this is like all brand new information. Like how interesting. But let's be real, right? We knew that this story was going to be great. And to think that we are just starting with her birthplace and we're already like in awe. Like it's going to be an exciting <laughs> ride. Yeah. Uh, this also reminds me of one of our episode ladies, Doris or Dorothy. It was one of those. I'm really bad. Is, um, but their family moved to Africa. So besides Lion Country, I'm excited to know what her parents did too. Lizzie, continue, please. Got to know. All right. But just to answer Nerdity's question, Lion Country, I mean, I think it just means wilderness. <laughs> like, it's not very populated or built up. Lions are still walking around, you know? That kind of thing. Is that a very common expression? Because I just Googled it, and even Urban Dictionary doesn't know it. I honestly don't know. That is a direct quote from several interviews with Denise. Uh, like, she, that's how she always refers to it. So okay. I am saying it as Denise would say it. Okay, got it, got it. Lion country it is. <laughs> Denise's parents were Shim Lakovsky, an entrepreneur and merchant, and Phyllis Hepker. Shim Lakovsky's family was Jewish and originally from Lithuania. They came to South Africa in the early 1900s to flee the pogroms and other oppression in Europe. He grew up in Johannesburg and went to college, but wasn't a great student and didn't like it, so he left college and went to northern Rhodesia, where he had a cousin, to learn from, quote, Life's University. He and his cousin opened up stores in the area for the local community, eventually owning the Nakana Trading Store. So Denise had a brave influence in her life. A role model who ventures into the unknown and takes chances. I like that. Yeah, I can see how this go-getter attitude would transfer to Denise. So what about her mama, Lizzie? So Phyllis Hepker grew up in the Veld, or the African grasslands of southern Rhodesia. Her parents were also Jewish immigrants, but from Kurland in Latvia. Her father was a cattle herder and operated some mines. It sounds like they moved around a bit and spent some time in South Africa and then ended up back in Rhodesia. Mm. After high school, Phyllis went to Witwatersrand University in Johannesburg to study architecture. Stop right there. Denise's mom was an architect? This sounds like a Sheeples podcast first. This is so cool. Yes. So Phyllis was at school in the 20s when modernism was being taught, and she loved it. Unfortunately, her dad's health was declining, so she ended up leaving school to go back to Rhodesia and help the family out by working. While she was working at a hotel her family now owned in the town over from Nkana, she met Shim, and they got married. Man, what a bummer that she couldn't graduate. I mean— Everything happens for a reason, yeah. and her having to leave school led to other great things. So I'm going to focus on that. She was probably a major influence for Denise, and I'm really excited to hear where this story is going to take us. Mm -hmm. Yes. So Denise was the oldest child in her family, and when she was about one year old, she got very ill, and they thought it might be malaria. So at two years old, her parents decided that raising their kids in such a remote place wasn't the best idea. So they moved to Johannesburg, and that's where Denise grew up. She has three younger siblings, two sisters and a brother. Close call, but okay. Now Denise is going to be a city girl. 
doesn't something similar happen to another lady of ours where like our lady kept getting like malaria or something so they decided to move so that she wouldn't get sick anymore yeah she kept getting sick and they moved but i don't remember who that was i think it was jacoba mulder in mm-hmm. episode 86 yeah her dad worked in indonesia and then they had to move back to the netherlands cuz she got malaria a bunch uh, of times. yeah that's yep. it so in Johannesburg, a few of Phyllis's classmates from architecture school designed the family an international-style house in the suburb of Dunkeld. They were in touch with Le Corbusier, actually, so there was a connection there. But anyway, Denise grew up in an international-style house, and at age four, she decided she wanted to be an architect just like her mom. Yes! OMG! Mm-hmm. This is the first time I hear of someone wanting to be an architect at a younger age than me. Four is the youngest, like, ever, I think. (laughs) And I think it helps that her mom is an architect, so she knows this path is open to her. Mm -hmm. I love this so much that her mom was her role model. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you can tell. I'm really into this. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and yes, and yes. So for Denise to be able to grow up in a house that probably had some Corbut influences or some of his style incorporated, I'm sure had some influence too. For sure. All right. So we should talk a bit about Denise's childhood and the cultural influences around her because they would make a big impact on her work later on. And it's just sort of an interesting juxtaposition of different backgrounds and cultures in South Africa at that time. She grew up surrounded by a lot of Europeans who were fleeing during the Nazi regime and during World War II, or who just came to Africa from Europe. And these people brought with them their European view of Africa. She said, as a child, I too saw almost exclusively English places in the books I read. I lived in a harsher, drier landscape And although I found the high veld incredibly beautiful, English people around me seemed to like it only to the extent that it reminded them of home. Why, I wondered, must my landscape look like Surrey to be beautiful? I became a patriot for the African bushveld and scorned expats who preferred Surrey. Wow, how profound that as a kid, she was noticing these things and that she felt African because she was and that she could tell the Eurocentric view of the world existed and that it was not necessarily right. Wow. I'm not sure if this is correct, but it's interesting that she's essentially calling out colonialism, like taking land, turning it into something else. Like when there's natural beauty in its natural existence and its state and it's there's that pre-existing culture. I feel like this is beyond profound. Yeah, exactly. And of course, I mean, these are from interviews where she's sort of reflecting. But I think, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was striking to her even as a child that people were always sort of comparing to this other place, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She also mentions a painting teacher that she had as a child, a Dutch woman named Rosa van Gelderen, who told the students, paint what's around you or you won't be creative artists. This idea of understanding what's around you really stuck with her and helped her start to really analyze both the perceptions and opinions around her versus what she was actually seeing. She grew up with a lot of dichotomies and polarity. She said that she 
felt guilty even as a child that I had privilege beyond what I deserved in South Africa. And yet, she was also Jewish and was bullied in school for it. I think she never really identified with the colonial mindset of many English and European people who came to South Africa in that time, even though she was obviously still white in an increasingly segregated country. Man, there's so much to unpack here. I don't even know where to start or if we even have time to dive into this without going into a huge tangent. So um, I'll just say that this is fascinating. I mean, I'm sad for her, of course, that she was discriminated against that she was made to feel like other, but also her recognizing that she had a big privilege and struggling to figure out what to do with that as a child and as a teenager, that sounds like a lot. I mean, as an adult, we don't know what to do with this. Imagine a child that is so self-aware. It's just a lot. I really wonder how this all would feed into her architecture. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this time period in Africa does sound like it would be an overwhelming place to grow up. I wonder that for her, she was born there. So her viewpoint must be different from those that would move later in life. But I want to go back to the painting teacher and this quote of painting what's around you or you won't be creative artists. I like this. It might be a little too much for a child, but... That's deep. It hits home for me just because I had art teachers who would push me in this way that I still hold close to. So it resonated with me. That's lovely, Jessica. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, these observations led Denise to the, quote, is and the ought, a binary framework that she started to use and it would inform her work later. The is being the colony or the reality and the ought being the mother country or the ideals. She asked herself, where did we fit culturally and artistically, with Africa or with England? Mm. This is deep. Again, Denise, um, I'm thinking a little bit on what she means by ought. Well, I guess that she's saying that it depends on someone's view, what the ought is, and where it fits into that, and how that shapes what we do. It's a lot. Yeah, to me, this sounds as simple as the ideal versus the reality. And I think that's her conundrum, right? Mm, Okay. Yes, exactly. Like, the ideal would be non-colonialism and, like, Africa, Mm -hmm. you know, and then— but the reality is that colonialism. There is colonialism, and England people from England are coming and putting their spin on what they think Africa should be. Got it. Mm -hmm. So— Over the years growing up, Denise did change her mind about being an architect and thought about maybe being a teacher or studying linguistics and writing. She also considered research, and it sounds like she had a lot of curiosity and liked to learn about a lot of different subjects. But when she was in high school, she joined an archaeological society that went out to different digs in the wilderness, and there were a lot of university students part of the society, and one of them told her she should reconsider architecture. This is a little roller coaster. We went all over the place. <laughs> I wish I had joined an archaeological society in high school. I didn't I don't think those even existed for me. I thought about that profession a lot when I was younger. I thought I wanted to be an archaeologist, but it involved a lot of science, which I didn't really get into. That wasn't exciting for me. 
And I also don't know why, but I thought that as an architect, I would make more money than an archaeologist. I have no idea if that's true. <laughs> why do we think that? What is up that? Because I used to think that architects made a lot of money, too. I don't know. Boy, were we wrong. Everyone thinks architects make money. They do not. No. PSA. We poke. We broke. <laughs> nope. Mm. Anyway. I don't know if archaeologists make money either, though, to nurture these points. Yeah. So. I don't want to look it up. I don't want to know. That one's more of a toss-up, you know? I don't know what's an average salary. <laughs> Probably depends on what archaeology you do. Or how good of an archaeologist you are. Yeah. Well, Denise graduated high school when she was 16 and enrolled at Wits or Witswaters Rand in Johannesburg, where her mom went to school. Ooh, that's young. Glad to know that she followed her mom's footsteps, though. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. But apparently, the first year, she didn't do architecture. She did other humanities courses in French, psychology, and English for a year before going into architecture. So, in 1949, she finally starts the program at Witz, and she shows up in the program and sees all these men there. And she's like, what are they doing here? Who this? <laughs> exactly. So, because she only knew women architects, or like her mom was an architect, she thought that architecture was a woman's job. <laughs> no way. That's kind of interesting how she was exposed to the profession from a young age, but still didn't know enough about it to know that men were doing it. Okay. Yeah. I really like that to her, it's a woman's space and that this large group of men seem to be invading. That's kind of funny. It's hilarious. <laughs> like, it's not our typical <laughs> reaction from our other ladies, and I love it. I know. <laughs> So, it was a bit of a surprise for Denise, but she found a good group of friends, Diana Evaneri, Robin Middleton, and Robert Scott Brown. Oh, cute. Okay, so Diana Evaneri, she was also known as Diana Goldstein, but um, she was part of this group called Action, Action Group for Better Architecture in New York. She, like, this group is basically responsible for saving Penn Station. Whoa, yeah. all right. Mm -hmm. So this is, she's in good company. And Robin Middleton is a British architectural historian. He was editor of the Architectural Design and head of general studies at the Architectural Association in London until he moved to New York City more than 30 years ago. And today, he's professor emeritus at Columbia University. Those are some friends. Ooh. Right? Yep, some friends. Also— I don't know, listeners, if y'all ping the other name that we, was mentioned, Mr. Robert Scott Brown. Yeah. Ding, ding. That was not lost mm. on us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So when Denise started school, the architecture wasn't as modern-focused as it had been when her mom was going there 20 years earlier, right? Mm -hmm. She said that the teaching wasn't as forward-thinking and theoretical. So with this group of friends who were similar-minded, they could discuss ideas of architecture and what it would mean for their country, which was on the precipice of a major change with apartheid laws coming down the line. Uh-oh. Yeah, I mean, there was a modernism thing, but then it dipped, no? Uh, but this sounds like this is just going to make school just a little bit difficult. Yeah. So in addition to discussing and debating, Denise and her friends helped spearhead an exhibition called Man-Made Johannesburg. The exhibition was a survey of buildings in Johannesburg built between the 1910s and 1940s. Robert had a motorcycle, 
So he and Denise would go around the city to these buildings and talk to architects to collect photographs and drawings of the buildings for the exhibition. This started Denise's early interest in photographic documentation. This is equal parts impressive and Mm. cute. Mm -hmm. Sounds like the beginning of a rom-com or something. Right. So that exhibition was during their third year of school. And Denise said that the first couple years of school, she didn't interact with Robert that much. It sounds like she wasn't so sure about him because she knew his dad was this hotshot lawyer and anti-Semitic. Ouch. Aye, aye, aye. Yeah. Mm-hmm. However, at the end of their second year of school, Diana was like, no, girl, his mom is half Jewish and he's not like that. Robert's parents were divorced, and even though his dad had custody of him, he would spend vacations back with his mom and stepdad on their farm. And Robert didn't agree with his father at all. Diana for the win. Woo! But also, that must have been difficult to have parents with two different ideologies. Right. Yeah, for sure. And for the dad to diss on his mom, basically? Mm-hmm. That's hard. That's not right. Yeah. It didn't work out as— uh, <laughs> Clearly. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, so like I said, during their third year, they were working on this exhibition. She said they didn't date at all, that they were just friends and hanging out all the time. She was dating people. He was asking her about where to take girls on dates and whatnot. But then the end of the year comes up and their exams are in one week and they realize they have not studied at all. Whoops. And honestly, it sounds like they didn't do much schoolwork during the year because of the exhibition. Like they were all sort of, it was a little dicey. So she said that she and Robert spent a week straight cramming together for this exam. And at the end of the week, they were in love. Cute. But also, like, how much time did this exhibition take? All semester. Right? Like, Uh, yeah. It shouldn't, but okay, girl. The time management was not, uh, you can tell that they were much more excited about the exhibition than they were about their schoolwork. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, clearly. Hey, designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers, if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Do 
turn your architectural designs into stunning, immersive experiences with Enscape. This innovative tool integrates seamlessly with your design software to bring your ideas to life in real-time 3D and VR. With Enscape, you will experience instant rendering, have the ability to make design changes on the fly, and present your projects in stunning detail. Ideal for architects, designers, and anyone passionate about visual storytelling in architecture. Dive into a new era of design visualization with Enscape. Visit Enscape3D.com to learn more. Okay, so, but at this point, they're still only 19 years old. They're going into their last year of school, which typically was a year-long internship at an architecture firm, which you could go overseas for. So Denise was like, I'm going to go to London. So wait, Robert entered college at a young age too? They were the same age. They're actually like three days apart, Mm. actually. But he didn't graduate high school early like her, but they started architecture the same year because she had done that first year studying other things at college. Okay, I forgot that. Okay, okay. Right. So like I mentioned before, Vitz wasn't super contemporary anymore. And she said it felt very nitty gritty and technical. Not a lot of theory. So she didn't feel like she had a good sense of design. So she wanted to get more knowledge on that, which is why she wanted to go to London. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm guessing that there also weren't many options where she was. If there are any high schoolers or early college folks out there, this is something to note when looking at colleges that I don't think we talk about enough when deciding schools, like technical versus theoretical schools versus like the more artsy schools. So I'm glad that Denise is talking about this. Did y'all know that before going to Syracuse? No, that wasn't my choice. Me neither. Well, I mean, I did sort of because I visited a lot of different schools. And I think the ones that were very technical told you they were technical schools. Like they were very upfront about it and wanted, and that was sort of like a positive, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean, about going there. Interesting. I think the ones that were more theoretical and design-based they didn't really advertise advertise it in the same way, but yeah, I mean, it worked out. Yeah, it worked out in the end for us. But like, I think my only notion was that an art school that taught architecture versus a school that had architecture. Mm. I think that was the only difference. But that's also because I just knew that I didn't want to go to an art school because I had done that for high school. Yeah. But I didn't think about that part of like technical versus theoretical. Yeah, got it. Okay. So what's Denise going to do? All right. Well, Robert stayed back in South Africa for their last year, and Denise heads off to London to work for Frederick Gibbard. Apparently, South African schools taught amazing drafting because she said she was a bomb drafter compared to the other people in the office. (laughs) (laughs) So she did say that that was a huge asset and a really good foundation for her that she did learn in school. She said she still loves detailing and says that she probably loves it more than most urbanists in her position. Interesting. Mm. So after working for six weeks, she went over to the AA because she had read about it in a bunch of magazines and stuff. But it sounds like she didn't think much of it, to be honest. She said, I thought they produced a lot of hot air and a picnic and a pantomime. (laughs) But she went over to the office (laughs) and told them, I'm thinking of coming here to study. And they said, well, there's an entrance exam next week if you want to take it. 
So she did, and she got in. Oh. Check, check. Getting it done. <laughs> Sounds like Catherine Bauer at Cornell. Check out episode 24 to know what I'm talking about. Yeah. If you haven't heard that already. <laughs> <laughs> I think she ended up liking it, though. Yeah. But it was more just like the perceptions. <laughs> I mean, she said it felt right, and she transferred to the AA and studied under Arthur Korn and had Ove Arup as a critic. She said about her time in London, for a neophyte European with an African background, this strange mixture of CM, Arthur Korn, post-war socialism, and new brutalism was a wonderful elixir. I think it formed the foundation for most of my subsequent thinking about architecture. <clears throat> Ove Arup, like Arup, the engineering powerhouse firm behind all the cool projects, like Arup, Arup. That is so impressive. Mm -hmm. I also think that Denise was entering like a really interesting era in architecture. Like we're talking about all of the greats. So like Arthur Korn, for example, is a German architect and urbanist who had ties with like the Bauhaus. He was buddy-buddy with Gropius and Ernest May. He also worked under Eric Mendelssohn, which is like very like that type of architecture was just so cool to me. So and Denise got to see all of that. So cool. So while she was studying at the AA, it sounds like she fell in love with the emerging new brutalist crowd and also learned a lot about mannerism, which would both influence her future work. Mm, okay. So I had to take a second to refamiliarize myself a bit. We all know about brutalism, right? It's this minimalist style of architecture that former presidents created a, tried to create a mandate that would ban public buildings from having this style, which is mostly composed of exposed concrete, glass, or steel, you know, very bare with little to no decoration. Now, new brutalism came after this, and it's like brutalism, but what makes it different is this added concept called as found, which is like the display of the structure, like visible beams, tongue and group joints. Regular brutalism might have just covered all of that beauty with, like, sheetrock, but new brutalism showcases it. Ooh, that sounds gorgeous. Mm -hmm. I never knew about brutalism versus new brutalism. I like that. Right? And I've never heard of mannerism in architecture, so I had to look that up. So from my quick internet search, what I understood is that mannerism was the precursor to Baroque it was a response to the Renaissance that focused on extreme sophistication, novelty, and complexity. So it sounds to me like it led to Baroque architecture, which sounds like two very different things, like new brutalism and mannerism. <laughs> like, how is that coming together? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think the mannerism part was sort of recognizing old styles and things like that. And mm. it's sort of like an anti-modernist idea of like we take all of that away and we're and we build something new okay. and sleek and that kind of thing. So Denise met Peter and Allison Smithson, who were part of the new brutalist movement and part of Team 10, who were pushing back on the theories and ideologies of CM. The Smithsons were focused on London's East End in the post-war era. Denise found another example of is and ought, the is of working class and the ought of upper middle class. Denise Balancing dichotomies, one continent at a time. After two years at the AA, Denise graduated, and shortly thereafter, Robert came and met her in London, and they got married on July 21st, 1955. 
Their honeymoon was a hitchhiking trip across Yugoslavia to take photographs. Hashtag couple goals. I love this. A year later, Denise got her registration as an architect, and she and Robert decided to travel and work their way around Europe. Again, couple goals. Did she get her registration in England? Yeah. Ooh, all right. Well, traveling through Europe, that's one way to celebrate being licensed. Maybe it's not too late for me to do that. Where'd they go? (laughs) Yeah. Well, they went to France, Germany, the Netherlands, and eventually Italy. Mm. They both enrolled at the 1956 CM Summer School at the Instituto Universitario di Arquitectura in Venice. It was a month of intensive study and design work attended by people from 15 different countries. The course focused on urban planning and architecture. The architects running it were Franco Albini, Ignazio Gardella, Ernesto Rogers, Mm. and Giuseppe Simona with final critiques by Ludovico Quaroni and Yap Bakama. Those are a lot of fancy-sounding names, but I can't say that I recognize any of them. Yeah, me neither. But the program seems really interesting. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Now, obviously, this course was meant to be an extension of CM and their principles, right? But it sounds like during the summer school that year, it had been put on three times previously, the CM principles were rejected and debated very thoroughly. This was in line with the emerging Team 10 ideas of new brutalism and structuralism. I was going to say, I found it interesting that they went to study something that they rejected. You know, kind of like me reading Atlas Shrugged, which, by the way, if anyone has been following us through the seasons, I'm still struggling to finish this book, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But as a side note, I think it's really important to understand something you disagree with to make sure you have another point of view than your own, you know? So I kind of like that Denise is doing that. Yes. Yeah, that is true. Sometimes I find that if there's something that I don't like, my curiosity drives me to want to learn more about it, just so that I can get the whole idea behind it, if that makes sense. But this also just sounds like a time for a lot of debate about architecture in general, which can also be interesting to just witness. Mm. After finishing their course, Ludovico Quaroni suggested that they go work in Rome for Giuseppe Vaccaro. He needed two assistants immediately for a social housing project. So remember, this is 1956. So Italy, along with all of Europe, is experiencing a boom in city populations and trying to figure out how to house everyone and also trying to decide what kind of architecture they want to create in a post-war era. Mm. Baby boomers! (laughs) Boom. Yes. After this, Robert and Denise returned to South Africa in 1957. They always intended to return and, quote, work in Africa as Africans. However, after they returned, they realized that they wanted to go back to school to better study urban planning because they felt it would be critical to working well in Africa. Peter Smithson suggested that they go to the U.S. because he knew a guy through Team 10 who was teaching at the University of Pennsylvania. His name was Louis Kahn. Oh, (laughs) just Louis Kahn. No big deal. Yeah. Sidetrack. I just visited my very first Louis Kahn project in person. Did we visit any Louis Kahn projects in school? I don't think so. Mm. Not that I remember. Yeah, I don't think so. So I think that this was my very first Louis Kahn project. So it's the Modern Art Museum in Fort Worth. And I was blown away by this dude and his architecture. I am so excited right now for Denise that she's going to go be his student. Yeah. (laughs) 
Also, Nijiri, you'd be very interested. Louis Kahn, he is an interesting fellow and has an interesting story about baby mamas and stuff. But anyway. Oh. Yeah. It's it's interesting. Either way, the architect from the architecture, I like his architecture. And I think it's admirable also that Robert and Denise wanted to go back to Africa to work as Africans. Yeah. So the Scott Browns moved to Philadelphia in 1958 to start their graduate program. One of the big things about this program versus others in Europe was that it was focused on social sciences. She said that she studied economics, urban sociology, housing, urban statistics, and city planning history and practice, and could not believe that she had lived her life until then without the information. I need this in my life. Mm-hmm. I just need it. Yeah. While they were studying at Penn, she was taught by Herbert Gans. Herbert was a social scientist who focused on pop culture and was critical about European modernism's focus on form and function. He wanted urban planners to look at social concerns. I'm sure the Scott Browns got a kick out of that. Yeah. She also studied under David Crane and was apparently influenced by the writings of Jane Jacobs. (laughs) Okay. Just casually throwing in two influential architects and urban planners. I mean, hello, Jane Jacobs. We're talking about Jane Jacobs. Mm Mm-hmm. We are. It's a name-dropping episode. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. We should play bingo. (laughs) One Sunday, she and Robert were out for a drive outside the city, and a driver ran a stop sign and hit their car. Robert died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Mm. He was 28 years old. Mm. Oh, my goodness. No. No, no, no. This is tragic. Also, okay, this is going to make zero sense. But this whole time, I've been thinking we were talking about Robert Venturi, even though you've been saying Robert Got brown, but in my head, it was, <laughs> it was the same person. And then I got really confused. Like, what do you mean this guy died at 28 years old? No, that didn't happen. Lizzie, you got your facts wrong. Like, delete. But <laughs> then I realized that it's a different Robert. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's been like 50 minutes of conversation. <laughs> I just realized. <laughs> oh, no. This is awful. Yeah. So I didn't know that this happened either. Like, I did know that there's two Roberts, but I just thought they got divorced or something. I didn't know that this Robert died. That's so tragic. And at 28. I'm in shock. I know. That's awful. Right? Yeah. Well, Denise was obviously distraught by this, and she went home to South Africa. A few months later, though, she went back to school in the fall, saying— no alternative seemed better. She immersed herself into her work and graduated with her master's in city planning in 1960. I'm still in shock. I mean, I'm glad she got her master's, but I am so sad that she became a widow so early in life. I'm just so sorry. Mm. Right? It's awful. Also, they lived up, like, they did a lot, though. I would have thought that they were, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. This guy's only 28. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Ugh. I know. Well, ladies, this is where our story ends today. You will have to tune in next week to see what Denise does next. What? We stop here? No. No. You can't leave us here, Lizzie. (laughs) I mean, it makes sense to stop here, but wow. Like, well, uh, it's been great to learn about Denise's upbringing, 
her influences, how she viewed the world, and all her interests. And I'm really looking forward to learning how this would all influence her work and to understand her work more deeply after next week. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm still in shock. I know. There was just too much to do in one episode about Denise, so. Understandable. This week was mostly stuff you have not heard about. Yep. And it will hopefully help influence, like you said, Nergidi, the stuff that maybe you kind of already knew about Denise next week. All right. All right. Now we've reached the second half of our episode, The Caryatid. This is where we select a woman living today who is doing her thing, furthering the profession, and whose work continues to hold the profession up just like the caryatids or columns shaped like women found on Greek-style buildings. Without further ado, this week's caryatid is... Majora Carter. Majora is an urban revitalization strategist who was born in the South Bronx in 1966. Initially, the Bronx was mostly populated by working-class white families. Then in the mid-20th century, black families began moving into the neighborhood and white flight happened. This meant that the neighborhood lost resources from banks and landlords, and growing up in this atmosphere inspired Majora to work to change it. That sounds like really important work. You know, my mom grew up in the Bronx during that time. I should ask her if she experienced this. Mm. I just love hearing origin stories like this. Like, it's so important to see, and it's interesting to see, too, from an anthropological standpoint, I guess. Mm -hmm. She graduated from the Bronx High School of Science and went to Wesleyan University in 1984 for her Bachelor's of Arts, then NYU for a Master's in Arts in 1997. She then returned to the Bronx and worked at the Point Community Development Corporation. She helped spearhead the Hunts Point Riverside Park Project. Okay, I just looked at pictures, and it looks really pretty. We should visit this next time we're in New York. Mm -hmm. She went on to found Sustainable South Bronx, a nonprofit organization that works to improve the environmental and economic state of the South Bronx. She also co-produced the radio show The Promised Land from 2008 to 2011, which won a Peabody Award. After leaving SSBX, She formed the Majora Carter Group, LLC, which is a consulting firm that looks at technology, environment, and business and how they come together. Whoa, that is so, so impressive. I wonder if we can listen to this now, even though it's no longer on the air. I was looking for it, but I can't find it too easily. I did learn that she's a MacArthur Fellow, too. More and more impressed by Majora. This all sounds so amazing, and I can definitely see the similarities between Majora and for this part of Denise's life. Yeah. Okay, before we say goodbye, we want to say thank you to CMYK for the music, John W., our technical producer, and most of all, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning about Denise and Majora, along with our banter, and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Again, thank you. She Builds Podcast is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. And Gable Media is all about building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. What are your thoughts on what happens next in Denise's life? If you've enjoyed it, 
please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your neighbors, your exhibitionists, your friends that help put exhibitions together, your people looking to change the world, your mamas, your mamas who are architects, your moms that are not architects. Tell them to give us five stars on iTunes. Tell us to write us a review. And this will all help us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. We are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com, leave a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com, or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at shebuildspodcast and on X at shebuildspod. Bye! 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 Bye. I don't know what to say about January, so I was like, New Year's resolutions. It's a month away. I don't know what I'm resoluting. <laughs> I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day i i, I don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.